A warm welcome to all the viewers who have joined us today for our live stream. I am very happy about your interest in the interview with KML Vision founder and CEO Dr. Philip Kites. The interview will start immediately after this short introduction. If there are short glitches during the video transmission due to some internet problems, um, I would like to apologize to you already now. We do our best that at least the audio is functioning to 100%. I don't want to keep you in suspense any longer and we will start with the interview. Enjoy the conversation. Hello, Philip. Um, how are you today? Hi, Stefan. I'm good. Thank you. How are you doing? Wonderful. So once, once again, thank you very much for uh, agreeing to give me this interview today. And I'm very happy that the day today worked out so well. And I appreciate that you took the time today, despite your busy schedule, to be in part of this interview here. Um, Philip, you are the Managing Director of Carmel Vision. Um, uh, and congratulations, uh, by the way, by winning the Born Global Championship Award last, last year. I'm, I'm really impressed about that. Um, so your company is dedicated to the development of analysis tools for scientific research, which are machine learning algorithms that assist the scientists in pattern recognition and allow observation of morphological changes in, for example, cellular parameters. Um, can you tell us a little about how you got interested in this topic, what is your scientific background and how your company was founded? Sure, thanks. Uh, it's my pleasure to be uh, on uh, the interview. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, it's always nice to uh, talk a little bit about uh, the background as well, other than uh, just uh, pitching a product. So there's always a lot more to a company than just uh, the product and uh, what's uh, seen in marketing. And I think this is a nice opportunity to uh, talk about this uh, in more detail. So um, my background is in computer science. I studied um, at the Graz University of Applied Sciences uh, eHealth, which is kind of a mixture uh, between uh, medicine, uh, IT and uh, economics. And um, from that I uh, advanced to the Medical University of Graz where I did my PhD um, and I was working mainly there on histology projects and I was uh, developing image analysis solutions based on machine learning and deep learning uh, for uh, solving large-scale uh, high-resolution imaging uh, problems. And uh, from that, uh, my co-founder and I, we decided that uh, these tools uh, we have been developing in the scientific um, setting, they are, I mean, they have so much potential to be used in, in practice. So we decided that uh, from going from, from specialized solutions uh, to uh, a product uh, that, that can be used by anyone basically um, would be the, the goal of a company. And so we decided to found KML Vision. Wonderful, exciting. So um, uh, it's also, I think it's, it's a very exciting field, the um, pattern recognition combined with artificial intelligence and machine learning. And this brings me to my first question. What makes your company, Camera Vision, so special? Uh, when you somewhat compare it with, other, with your competitors or other AI CROs on the market that are also looking for tools that support medical and pharmaceutical research. Um, of course, I mean, the, the main driver for uh, founding the company has been that uh, we wanted to provide some accessible solutions to uh, people who don't have the background uh, to create um, such solutions on their own. And over the couple, last couple of years, we have been developing a platform technology that allows us to uh, solve a very diverse set of problems. And uh, this involves um, any aspect of multidimensional bioimaging basically. So from, from in vitro um, assays over to high resolution multifluorescence imaging, um, with the, the platform can cover basically anything. And um, others are kind of very focused on uh, particular uh, verticals, so for example, histopathology. And of course, in uh, the biomedical, or when you want to do uh, cutting edge biomedical research, 
uh, and probably you also know that uh, best, uh, there are so many different processes and stakeholders involved um, that uh, you probably need um, more than a single software solution. And uh, we acknowledge, of course, that this uh, is great variety and poses a challenge to the research process and uh, that this uh, diverse set of research questions, they uh, demand sustainable solutions. And uh, of course, you could go ahead and develop AI tools for individual projects and uh, that serve very specific purposes and which actually this is where we come from and we know that, that this is creating kind of ad hoc solutions um, and these don't really scale. So for the next project you need to repeat creating another tool, another model and for the next another and so forth. And uh, now we have a platform solution which cuts down the time uh, of developing these uh, flexible AI based solutions. Mm -hmm. Um, are your customers also involved in the development of your product and what does the cooperation with you look like? So in general we try to involve them very closely and this makes us also uh, quite approachable. So we have kind of a, a unique uh, opportunity to involve the clients very early also in, in development of new products and um, larger companies, they, they just don't have this flexibility anymore um, and they are limited in adapting to individual needs. And as I was saying before, there are so many different things uh, when you do uh, research. Uh, in the end, there's always a big trial and error component involved. And if you want to achieve real innovations, you of course need the tools that let you work creatively rather than uh, executing just repetitive tasks all the time for uh, which like humans aren't really good at anyways. So we try to uh, involve the customers uh, very early and I think the, the main pillar of uh, providing a good software solution is understanding the requirements. So at some point uh, the customer um, has some research question and we, we try to uh, challenge this. So perhaps also to give some feedback to the customer and say, hey, did you uh, formulate the, the, the problem, the research problem in a correct way so that we can help you with our tool set? And if that's not the case, we try to rephrase it uh, in a way that our technology also is able to help in that. And um, how does, do you ensure that the technical inquiries from a customer reach you promptly and are properly understood? Because sometimes there's, uh, I, I would say, it's, it's, there are different languages between biological scientists and medicinal scientists and bioinformaticians. I think um, we have a really good understanding of the, uh, how, how a lab workflow, for example, uh, looks like and how people expect to uh, work with such a software. And uh, this has been uh, like the result of a, a very long research process uh, on ourselves, um, or we did ourselves. And um, in, in the end, it's always about um, under, or letting, letting uh, communication be the, the most important part of um, yeah, collaboration in, the, in, in that sense. So you can have the best tool, but if you don't understand what the clients want to solve with it, it's uh, useless basically, because they won't be able to use it. And we are trying to um, solve that or sort it out within the first couple of uh, meetings we have with clients and uh, enable them to use this technology. Sometimes it's just involving um, some changes in the organization itself, maybe some changes to the process when there's more digitization um, in, involved uh, of, of, of samples, for example. And um, with, with that, or armed with that uh, knowledge, um, we enable people to, to use this technology. How do you think, Philip, um, the topic of customer experience and user experience will change the application of AI-driven software in the scientific environment and especially in um, medical research with regard to short-term and mid-term expectations? So um, many, many um, organizations are still using let's say, uh, the, the standard way of, of analyzing uh, images or like using AI software is, is not that common. Uh, even we are in 2022 right now, but there are some uh, very rigid decision processes in place sometimes that um, prevent a, a faster um, uh, at 
yeah, establishment of new tools within uh, organizations. Of course, that is owed uh, to some part uh, um, to the uh, regulatory processes and that you need to uh, have a very um, strict and rigid uh, core set of quality management, which um, is possible, of course, to uh, break up and to include, include new innovations. But um, this is more, uh, let's say, a matter of how, how willing is an organization or how willing is a, a client to um, try that out in, in a specific setting. And the faster they will do some, some proof of concept um, implementations of, of this technology, the faster they will be able to um, use this in, in routine and in production. And um, I think that the, the customer experience and user experience, especially in the field where a lot of scientific work is done, is, uh, needs to be separated in some way. So you cannot just uh, go ahead and say, I build a software and um, these are my users and I sell to the users so that I won't work because there are so many different people involved. And when you think about um, how uh, decisions are made. So when, when the software or a tool or technology gets evaluated within a company, it's always kind of a bottom up and top down uh, mixing because you need to communicate the uh, perhaps economic uh, benefits to uh, the, the decision makers and uh, the day-to-day the, uh, -day, uh, benefits for routine work uh, to the users. And uh, this is, of course, definitely something that um, will uh, yeah, expand and will get better in the future because um, many companies have realized that um, there, there is no way of, of uh, yeah, just selling off-the-shelf software because the uh, use cases are so diverse in this field. What will happen to vendors if they do not focus on, on this issue, customer experience and user experience? What do you think about that? Um, I think that uh, many of them, they are really uh, already uh, focusing on that. So that is a, a very nice uh, movement we see on the market. So it's not just uh, we go ahead and uh, sell what we had uh, or, or what we, we developed over the last 20 years and we try to resell it in 2022 as well. So they are kind of uh, adapting new technologies and new ways of, of thinking how people interact with software because this has also changed a lot in the recent years. And um, since software is kind of ubiquitous, um, some people are kind of yeah, expecting that there is a software for any kind of purpose, but maybe there uh, is not yet. But and definitely the, the vendors need to adapt to certain needs that uh, come from the market and that they um, uh, yeah, can kind of integrate into their existing products. And if they are not able to do that, I think that there will be a change of, uh, of tools uh, from, let's say, big enterprise on-prem solutions to cloud-based systems that are far more flexible, that they can um, also enable a lot better a cost of cost control when you invest in something like this as a company. So uh, vendors that fail to do so probably will uh, have a hard time uh, doing some upsells or some, some other um, placing new products um, of the same business model. Interesting. When, and what do you think are the challenges when you uh, develop AI technology and you have the goal to achieve harmonized software with regard to user experience, but you have users of different levels of experience and you have to consider about that? Yeah, that is an excellent question. The, I mean, of course, there are... Uh, a lot of tech-savvy people among uh, biologists and medical doctors, um, which are our primary users. But uh, there is, of course, a, a huge gap between what they, I mean, what their previous experience with software is and uh, what they expect from from AI software to, yeah, to to to. I mean, it doesn't work wonders, of course, but at some point you need to understand what are the what are the um, benefits of a software and how do you use it and um, when you develop such an AI tool you can't just uh, assume that people know what uh, how the machine learning process works so there is a lot of accompanying documentation we need to provide and also 
educate people on, on the new technology so that this is uh, easy to use and, and uh, it comprehensively um, carries the, the essentials of machine learning. Um, otherwise, it's still a black box no one wants to touch. So, so you mentioned that software is constantly changing, especially when it is supported of, or when you have highly innovative applications um, you're using. How do you ensure um, the stringent interaction that is necessary with your customer during the developmental phase? And how do you ensure this during the subsequent redune operation of, the, of your applications? And, and how do you handle the situation when a customer afterwards requires a new feature and is by short notice, which can happen? I know this. From my own experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's good that software is not something you built and then uh, yeah. it's, it's there. Um, it, I mean, the, it is kind of a, a burden and uh, an opportunity at the same time. Because mm -hmm. um, if you have some, some feature that doesn't really uh, fulfill your requirements right now, but there is maybe just a small add-on or some change you would request because it, um, it just doesn't fit. Um, I mean... Every, every vendor tries to build something that is not uh, super customizable because at some point you won't be able to maintain a lot of installations, for example. Um, but the requirement that you need to adapt to certain uh, special new features that are for, for, let's say, a small set of customers in a very particular uh, field of application, that is easily done or can easily be implemented because it doesn't touch the entire software package. And um, we try to uh, involve many of these stakeholders also when we develop a new feature um, that uh, perhaps is driven by, um, let's say, two or three um, of our prospects or of our leads in the market. Um, then we involve them very early in the feature uh, design process before we even start to implement something that may not be even fitting what they expect. So uh, there is a, a design process um, where we have interviews, where we try to gather the ex expectations of the users, because at some point, if someone says, I want to have, I don't know, this cell type recognized, this is a very generic formulation. And we try to break it down into what is the essence and what... Um, what is maybe also a synergy we can have with other features we are developing so that we are quite efficient in delivering uh, on, a, on a very timely basis um, uh, new features to our software where we can scale it immediately also to other um, of our clients. Because there are many good ideas out there, but uh, it's just not possible to, to scram them every, every single one of them mm, into the yeah. product. So there is a prioritization, of course, uh, happening. And uh, when a customer wants to have some add-on or some, some sub subsequent uh, change of the software, short notice is relative, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if it's, if it's half a year, it's already short notice, probably. Okay. Um, uh, so the, the idea is um, if we can manage it and uh, it's, it's possible within the roadmap, Mm -hmm. um, we have uh, for our product, we can always squeeze in some, some smaller features that, for example, mm -hmm. take one or two weeks of implementation. Um, but I think that is also something that is really uh, nicely uh, possible with a company like ours uh, because uh, we are flexible enough to, to adapt to these wishes. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. Maybe this is also due because you're very let's say, um, a company that its personnel is also interacting close to each other, I guess. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And it's, it's always the case because um, we are very R&D focused. So there are different kinds of uh, companies on the market. Um, we are not just a distributor of standard software. We are um, like... Yeah, creating everything by ourselves. So it's 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 a it's something that organically grows into something that uh, the market um, or to maximize the product market fit. Basically, Philip, when when you look back to the early times when you start uh, your activities with the company, what were your three key learnings 
um, within the collaborations with your with your clients. Um, yeah, and when you compare this, what are the differences between clients from the scientific uh, part of academia versus colleagues or scientists coming from pharmaceutical industry? So the key learnings, I mean, one key learning definitely was uh, people need a good uh, user experience to be able to uh, successfully work with software. Um, we ourselves, we come from the algorithm development side originally. So we started out as um, like a two-man uh, service company and we were developing individual software solutions, mostly focusing on the algorithm part. And then we uh, made some, some basic uh, user interface, which didn't have any, any graphics or a visualization mm -hmm. or anything. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, it solved the problem, but not in the way the customer expected it. Okay. So the yeah. key learning was, I mean, uh, we now have in our ICOSA platform a huge um, portion of our development dedicated to data management, um, which wasn't even the plan in the first place. So the, the, one of the key learnings was, okay, if people cannot really manage their data and uh, understand in a, in a very simple way the value of data for this kind of analysis, uh, we will be lost. So we won't sell any any single algorithm if that is not the case. And so we built uh, the ECOS portal, which basically is the the, the interaction uh, of or the, the user interface uh, for interacting uh, with uh, the entire platform. And I, th I don't think that there is too much um, difference between a client from academia and a client from um, the, the industry. Because in the end, uh, it's science and um, the, the, the good scientific practices and um, how you conduct science, it should be the same, right? So it's, it's international and um, it's, it's also um, not really restricted to some, um, yeah, some branch of, of, of scientific work. But um, to, to add to that, I think it's really important that um, there is a lot of more uh, cost and performance pressure in the industry than in the academic mm -hmm. sector. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I mean, this is kind of the, the, the tension. Um, everyone is kind of working in, in, on the academic side. You need to apply for funding. Um, and on the um, industry side, you need more projects and, and try to, to uh, get revenue from that. But in mm -hmm. both cases, our tools can really help to accelerate this um, these uh, workflows that are involved and it doesn't matter if it's in an academic or an industry setting because mm -hmm. we are really uh, focusing on, on speeding up and, and making the life uh, easier for uh, our users. Um, what one can say is that you are pioneers in the field of machine learning and uh, development of deep learning tools for classical uh, pathology especially and therefore the other question is where did you also have to pay the classical apprenticeship money in the early days? Um, I wouldn't say that you ever stop paying this money. <laughs> so okay, cool. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of an ever-evolving uh, um, process. So if, if you say you're at the end um, of, of learning, you're probably making a huge mistake. Uh, so you never stop learning and uh, investing, let's say, some, some money or some time as well into uh, really yeah, reaching out um, or reaching for the moon, basically, um, will, will kind of get you where uh, you want to be because uh, in the end you want to be uh, positioned like a leader in the field. You want to understand um, what your uh, target customers are doing. And uh, at some point, you need to do a lot of advance, um, advancements and um, you need to do a lot of development before you even can show to some client, hey, this is working, if they never had heard anything about it. So I think one of the biggest uh, challenges for uh, a software company or especially our company was to uh, convince people that... Uh, this what we are uh, presenting and what we are uh, talking about is really working and they want to lay their hands on it. And um, we were lucky and we had uh, a huge R&D funding over the last couple of years, uh, which enabled us to um, create the tools in a way and, and, and um, 
uh, yeah, kind of uh, focused on the on the customer's needs, so that now we have a really good uh, fit, so that uh, people can actually start using it right away, and this is our goal. Someone in the audience uh, who is listening to us now and he is interested in, in investing in AI tools, uh, especially in your Icosa Plus, for instance. What are the requirements that you have to think about that have to be fulfilled when implementing such AI-powered image analysis? So um, the first one I would suggest would be uh, a thorough understanding of, of the research process or the business process, basically, that... Um, needs to be supported with these tools um, and then uh, try to, to figure out what are the expectations. So do you want to have uh, a very specific part of this process automated, for example, or do you want to have, um, I don't know, more stakeholders um, using the same technology, bringing them uh, together in a, in a virtual space on, on the image data? Um, of course, there, there's something involved uh, regarding the imaging hardware and data storage because you, you need uh, some, some basic IT infrastructure. You, you just can't uh, say I'm going to use AI tools at the larger scale if you don't have the infrastructure for that. Um, but luckily, I mean, many of uh, the, the investments into um, such tools or even earlier in, in large-scale storage when, when automating the imaging um, has been like on the rise a couple of years ago. Um, many people just invested into um, uh, storage solutions, so they have petabyte-scale uh, uh, storage in-house, but there's just the data sitting there, and uh, most of it is just, yeah, it's just there, but it's unused. And uh, so they, they have a certain prerequisite they already fulfill, with uh, data storage and imaging hardware. And uh, what you never should neglect is the, the skill set of the personnel. So you need to um, have a, a basic understanding of uh, yeah, wh wh what, is, what is it worth if I have my data digitally analyzed, uh, what is it worth um, um, to have or, or also to invest into human resources to build up the skills of understanding the results some, some uh, of these tools deliver. Because in the end, uh, it's just, if you, if you really boil it down to the essence, it's numbers and numbers and numbers and numbers. And if you don't know what these numbers mean, for example, what is the sensitivity of an algorithm, um, then you won't be able to use this in, in, in any uh, setting. And uh, this, I mean, the, the, the attitude should be, that you want to learn something new and that you're uh, curious enough to try it. So there, it's, it's not something that you can touch. I mean, AI and software in the media, it's, it's sometimes really hyped um, and, and seems intangible, but I hope that with our technology and with our products, we can kind of uh, yeah, reduce the fear of getting in touch with uh, such, such technology and um, that it will be widely used uh, throughout the industry. In some way, I've already asked if, and you answered that there are no um, differences between um, clients coming from the industry, pharmaceutical industry or the academica. Uh, nevertheless, do you somehow in the interaction with uh, the scientists figure out some differences at all? May these rely to the differences that are more to the research um, topics the, the clients are working on and uh, or is this not the case? No, no, um, you're right. So there is a, a little bit of difference because in academia you uh, need to strive for the newest discoveries. So, which is perhaps not the case in, uh, the, uh, in the industry, uh, where you have more throughput and need to optimize, uh, and the goal is a little bit different. But in the end, uh, the developing the tools that uh, allow you, um, I don't know, using AI technology or image analysis technology for a wide set of use cases, this, this requirement is the same for both of them. Um, but in, in general, um, there is perhaps also a little bit more, let's say, um, freedom in creativity in the academic sector. 
which you don't have maybe of course um, also due to the um, yeah yeah revenue pressure uh, companies have um, that so th that would be one difference uh, I would be noticing yeah but in general what, what one thing uh, I would like to add um, was that I mean there when when you think about uh, how to create like uh, spaces or communities where people can exchange regarding these kind of technologies um, it's it's driven by both of them so there are um, companies that are very strongly interacting with universities um, not only because some of the universities may have unique equipment that the company just rents out and then of course the staff uh, operating these machines uh, is also um, uh, rented out from the from the university to the company. Um, so if you think about how, where where do they meet? So where where is where do they exchange um, regarding new technology? There are some some forums. There are some conferences that are attended by both the academic and the industry sector. And as I said, in the end, they are scientists and they they know how to talk to each other. So it doesn't matter where they come from. But um, it's it's definitely something where uh, both uh, find the space to exchange their experiences um, with such technology, and um, this would be also an interesting part where you can just uh, place um, the the right information for uh, using such such kind of of, of tools. Because in the end, they uh, want to understand how this works and, and they want to be able to assess if they would benefit from it. And you can only do that if you facilitate the exchange and the communication between them. Okay, yeah. But both have a common sense of how they look at science. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, Philip, what do you think about the statement that the development of new machine learning concepts somehow feels like being part of improvisational theater or playing chess free chess that is that is true um, so there are a couple of things to unfold here um, of course uh, neural networks are the state of the art um, when it comes to image analysis but um, there there are two different philosophies we can we can um, kind of support with our technology not every algorithm uh, we develop maybe also in a custom project with a client uh, needs to be based on deep learning and uh, neural networks. So we are able to choose the technology that fits the purpose the best. So we're not just a general applicant of uh, AI, of uh, deep learning to everything, because it certainly has some uh, requirements on its own, let alone the, the, the amount of data you need to train a robust model. Um, but uh, in, in general, it's it's, it's quite interesting to see that we uh, managed to do uh, the implementation and, the, and to bridge the gap between uh, something like uh, a very standardized uh, way of, of working with software and the flexibility or while actually retaining the flexibility to adapt to new use cases. So uh, it's exciting that uh, there are so many different things uh, that are happening and it never gets boring. So. It's, it's some, some kind of uh, a fuel for our company to also facilitate innovations and uh, let people try out new things, um, but just uh, on, a, on a very, um, or, or in, a, in a very accelerated way. So they don't have, have to invest like a month into uh, an image analysis, then perhaps uh, go back and repeat the protocol and uh, I don't know, make new uh, samples and stuff like this. So this, this iteration is, is happening much faster. And um, the idea is to um, yeah, let the customers work with this technology and, and in the end with neural networks uh, the way they intend to. And is this somehow one of the ways how one could increase the trust in new technology like uh, artificial intelligence? Because sometimes I feel people are... Some are reluctant to this new technology, or so they use it on a daily basis with their smartphones, uh, smart cars, or whatever. Yeah, that that is interesting. Uh, we have been noticing that um, because at the end, 
um, when we when we talk to new clients and they say, "Oh, it's a nice and interesting technology, but how how does it work? How how can we benefit from that?" Um, these are questions that, uh, I mean, in large portions, they uh, focus on. Okay, there is something new. I want to try it. I'm curious, but I'm kind of hesitant. Um, so we have. So I think we are the only company that offers free trials um, for. Um, using and trying out this technology and uh, this makes it quite accessible on uh, on a very yeah yeah on, on a, in a very easy way um, to to people who want to just try it out because in the end if you try something new it's like uh, learning to ride a bike you need to try it and uh, at some point you will manage um, and the idea is that uh, we have some showcases we have some um, we have some prepared projects where everything is, is like uh, explained in a way that you understand uh, what is happening. But um, in, in some ways, um, people think of it like a black box and uh, they sometimes want to understand and sometimes, sometimes they don't need to understand what is happening inside. And the, the, the way of approaching such technology is kind of... Um, or. or to use this technology is interesting because in the end you get in your car, you know how to drive it, but you don't know how the engine works and you don't care and uh, you trust that it works because many other people has, have also been driving cars, right? So um, in that sense, it's, it's pretty interesting to see that, uh, that there's a, a, a barrier uh, for this new technology where um, for other cases, people are not really reluctant to use anything. But in, in general, if we talk about data, so the awareness of uh, the value of data and how um, data adds to your business process is kind of, um, it's, it's interesting because at, at some point you have, in, in the end, your results and what you want is the result. And how you get there, you don't really care if it's AI technology, if it's just calculator or if you draw it by hand. It doesn't matter as long as you are at the end satisfied with the results. But um, AI and big data, these two concepts, they are kind of always a little bit um, scary because everyone is talking about, oh, there's huge amounts of data no one can process. That is not true because we have tools to process it. You just need to know what you want to have in the end. And for image analysis, it's particularly uh, easy to communicate what the tool does because uh, you can visualize it. So people are, or humans, they are very good at understanding visual concepts. And if you create some, some experience where they understand, okay, here in that area, the algorithm made an error. And this error may be uh, because we didn't put enough data into it, or we did some mislabeling in the data and stuff like this. And um, like with, with these small improvements, uh, you, you build up trust because the, the human is always involved in creating the AI. It's not something that you just um, get off the shelf and just press a button. Sometimes this is also okay. Um, but in, if you want to really um, yeah, establish this technology, you probably need to um, be involved also in, in the creation of the, of the, of the tools. Uh, Philip, Philip, you have you have so many customer con contacts, and so you're talking to so many different people. And um, so, in, in your experience, what expectations exist regarding the performance of AI-assisted image analysis? And could you somehow look at is the orientation? Is it uh, are the people interested in retrospective? technology orientation, or do you think should this technology only be used for in a prospective kind of manner? So there is, I mean, one, one example uh, we, we encountered recently was uh, when we talked to them about, hey, um, we have technology uh, that enables you to cut down the analysis time by, let's say, 97%. They were like, oh, that's interesting. Let's, let's just try that out. We have a data set and we want to know um, how this performs compared to what we already did. And I think this is a very good example to um, evaluate this technology. So in a sense where you, I mean, also referring to your previous question, 
where you need to build up trust that it does something meaningful, uh, you need to validate it. And not only if you're in a regulated environment, but just for uh, the scientific purpose of, of using a new method, right? So you need to prove that it's working. And um, approaching that, uh, the new field or the new application with existing data and questions, this is really a good way to um, get uh, started and get familiar with it. So in, in that sense, AI technology will be able to assist you in getting information out of existing data, but also that you establish a very sustainable method for future um, uh, projects. So you, you get a lot of uh, value out of it if you have something that you can validate with and um, apply this knowledge, because in the end it's knowledge uh, you, you integrate into your company and you build up IP, basically, that's not something that, I mean, it, you're not just using some standard tool like Microsoft Office, like everyone can use it, but you're building up IP, how to solve uh, complex uh, image analysis use cases with state-of-the-art technology. And if you integrate that into your processes, you will be gaining a competitive advantage over others who fail to do so. Philippine, I think this is the way uh, how, how you also can convince people who are experienced in image analysis and already have stable um, algorithms in place, classical uh, image analysis algorithms. Um, and this is the way how they then can benefit from this image analysis um, algorithms that are based on machine learning processes. Yeah, it definitely helps to convince them because in the end, um, if you can show that you are, let's say, 20 times faster and you arrive at the same or even better and more stable results, I mean, that speaks for itself. You don't need to argue any, any longer. And furthermore, you can get uh, results that you would not um, realize that are in your samples when using classical algorithms, for instance. Mm -hmm. It, it allows you to adapt uh, much, much more to what you already have. So the idea is when you do, for example, also, an, or if you have, let's say, you established AI technology and AI-based image analysis in your company, and um, you want to do a rerun or, let's say, extract information you have already uh, from already uh, run projects, so there is a lot of uh, information just sitting there or data until you make it to information, um, data is sitting there which can be retrospectively analyzed. So you, you uh, increase the value of what you already had uh, recorded in the past and integrate and create new um, insights from already existing data. So machine learning also allows you to uh, do this retrospective analysis where you don't need to uh, know everything beforehand, for example, how the um, how the variance in the image acquisition is, so they are more robust to uh, outliers. You can uh, work around uh, certain artifacts that may occur during the acquisition. Everything that is kind of adding dirt to your data is uh, easily solvable with, um, uh, with machine learning or with deep learning. And uh, the tools you have developed for uh, a very specific use case they probably cannot be easily transferred to a new one unless you have the exact same um, setup. And this lets you apply this technology in a much more versatile way. Um, Philip, in your opinion, what are the most difficult issues to solve in order to provide the user with a machine learning tool that radically improves the original custom process while being very easy to access for the people in the lab? Uh, okay, so the, the idea is that um, it's, it's substituting some existing uh, method or some existing uh, process that is working for them. And uh, I know that uh, once you have established some uh, standard for analysis or let's say some piece in your SOP, uh, you can just execute. It's pretty convenient to stick to it. So um, the most difficult issue is probably not that... Um, you have something that, or you can get something that works, which technologically we, we can do, but uh, to actually um, let this new method also 
enter an existing process and, and substitute something that is, uh, has been established. So it's at some point uh, a matter of how ready are these people um, to, to make the change and um, how easy can you show it to them that perhaps maybe in a parallel run, so you don't need to do blue-green uh, deployment and say, okay, from today we do just the new way, which is really uh, a good idea. <laughs> um, so just, just uh, letting it sink in and uh, letting get people familiar with it. So I think a difficult issue to solve is also um, uh, dedicating enough resources and time until this process and this uh, technology gets established within the process. So, Philip, image analysis is a well-established technology um, that has been developing at an immense pace over the last 20 years. Um, what are the opportunities in using AI compared to conventional image analysis? Uh, so I think one of the main uh, advantages of AI is um, adapting to new use cases. So this is just uh, has become so easy to ex uh, execute um, in, a, in a routine process that I think it, if, if someone in, in these years doesn't really consider uh, implementing something like this, uh, they will get uh, left behind at some point because... Um, you, you save so much resources if you have a, a platform or technology that um, lets you uh, quickly adapt to new um, requirements, um, which is just not possible with conventional image analysis. So there are, like in our case, we have uh, no code solutions. You don't need to script anything um, and you don't need to have uh, a special training. Um, even if the, the script engine or the, the workflow engine is really flexible, you need to train people, let's say, for one or two months, actually to be productive with this kind of solution. I'm not saying that it's not possible, but uh, you won't be uh, able to evolve from this kind of um, manual, uh, manually driven uh, uh, analysis approaches. And uh, perhaps it also doesn't really scale that well. So there is uh, two, two aspects to the scalability issue um, because... Of course, you can just uh, scale up some um, image analysis that uh, is based on conventional image processing by clustering it or just dedicating more computing resources to it. But uh, the second part is uh, the, the scalability in terms of, of uh, using it and, and um, uh, providing it to, to an entire organization. So the, the idea to have one tool that can be used for, let's say, by one research group for a specific purpose that may be different for, um, uh, from, the, from the purpose of another research group. And these opportunities, they can uh, be easily and, and in the vast majority um, frequently uh, be solved with um, AI rather than conventional image analysis. And what is in your opinion, or what are in your opinion, the top three thinking patterns that you have to bring with when you want to establish neural networks um, in the future-proof and a stable way for specialized applications? Um, so the first one would be to, I mean, be ready for a change. So in, in that sense that you... Um, that you allow a new technology to be uh, established. So in, in the sense of, in a, I mean, if you think about uh, how you is, uh, arrived at the current uh, state of the art, you also did some research and, and did some comparisons and then you selected probably the best one that's fitting to your needs. And um, back then, perhaps it was, okay, now I can automate stuff. Um, but right now, it's, it's I can automate and uh, add some more uh, flexible and, and um, intelligent uh, behavior to, to my algorithms and to my applications. Um, so understanding what the, um, the requirement is, so formulating the machine learning problem, I would call it, uh, would be uh, one uh, thinking pattern you need to establish because uh, if you want to solve, let's say, a detection task, how many of cell type X and cell type Y are in my sample, 
then you probably need a different approach rather than having uh, a segmentation of um, and, and, and generating morphological data. So this kind of uh, understanding which type of uh, model fits to which purpose is, uh, I think, the, the most important thing you can uh, you need to consider. I mean, if you are not knowing what you're looking for, it's always hard to get the answers. And um, in in that sense, it's definitely um, a good advice to <clears throat> invest into uh, learning the different types of training. So there are not many, but it will help you to um, better communicate also with uh, with the suppliers. So for example, technology suppliers, if um, you need help, if they need to refine some models, for example. So there's always a different kind of interaction. And we also help our customers um, refine their models when they trained it, for example, to a certain extent uh, themselves. But then there is always something uh, we can apply and we have uh, a lot of experience um, over the last couple of years collected um, regarding the optimization of existing models. And you can easily um, get out the, the next 5 to 7 to 10% of performance um, just by um, applying some tweaks and, and uh, train the model in a, in a very specific way. Is there a discipline, um, could be from research or any other discipline, uh, for which image-based machine learning networks work most robustly? And for which application is this true in this discipline? Um, I think for image classification, there has been a lot of research from many industries um, because it's uh, yeah a lot driven by, let's say, the automotive industry, um, self-driving cars and stuff like this. Um, but for the life science industry, I think uh, it's also a little bit different um, because the, uh, the the research setting is a little bit different from, let's say, a routine uh, setting where you just apply uh, the same algorithm once it's validated over and over again. And if I think of pathology, for example, if you have a, a clinically validated algorithm um, that, for example, detects uh, a Gleason grading in prostate cancer, um, this adds a lot of value um, and the, the downside is for that you need a lot of data, of course. So um, I think there's, there are different dimensions and it's, uh, it depends on how you want to use this technology um, in order to say, okay, it has the best benefit. You, you cannot really say it has the best benefit in this or in that, but it's kind of subjective. If, if something is of value to you and it serves that purpose, then it's of benefit and it serves your benefit. So the technology kind of adapts to the processes you're trying to support with it. So that the best benefit would have, which would have been my next question, is more on a subjective kind of thinking or experience with AI, you would say? Yeah, so I, I wouldn't dare to say that uh, it has the best benefit in healthcare or the best benefit in automotive because it's a technology, it's a tool and uh, it uh, should be there to ease our lives and not uh, just to be, let's say, the next uh, prophecy we, we are uh, chasing. But uh, in, in general, the idea is that if you use the technology for its intended purpose, then you will get the best benefit you can get. Philip, you are experienced in, in using artificial intelligence and many people are talking about AI, ML, DeepL and uh, somehow mixing these, these items. What is actually understood when one talk, is talking about this so-called artificial intelligence that enables machine learning and deep learning? And what are the differences of these three terms? Maybe I think many people can benefit in this case from your explanations. Mm -hmm. Uh, so artificial intelligence is kind of a scientific research field where you try to uh, build algorithms that act in a way that you don't know whether you're interacting with a human or with uh, a machine. Um, and there has been a lot of uh, philosophical questions also raised uh, regarding what is artificial intelligence. 
Um, and um, machine learning and deep learning are just methods you're using to um, create this impression of intelligent behavior. Um, essentially what it does, it, it's a statistical method that, or an adaptive learning algorithm that uh, learns from a set of data um, um, to execute a certain task. And machine learning has been uh, around for a couple of uh, years now. It's, it's not something new. And um, like machine learning is always or often associated with um, tabular data and, and uh, finding patterns in, in uh, large uh, data uh, lakes and, and data uh, stores. Um, but in general, it's also just a concept to, um, for a machine to learn from data. And deep learning is kind of the next step or the next evolution of machine learning. It's actually a, a subset of, of methods that fit into the machine learning uh, sector, um, which do one thing uh, quite differently. So in machine learning, you need to extract the features, so the, the, the individual um, properties the model should focus on yourself. So it's, there's always a feature extraction and feature design part involved, which is done manually. Whereas in deep learning, you have an end-to-end -end pipeline. So you just specify the input data and the output target. And the machine learning, or in that case, the deep learning algorithm figures out which features of your data are uh, best suited to get to the target. And this uh, enables you to um, remove this manual interaction with the machine learning process, um, which kind of, of course, introduces a bias. If you select the wrong features, you will never get to uh, what you are expecting. But at the same time, if you use deep learning end-to-end -end, um, pipelines, then uh, there is the opportunity that the algorithm may select something that is not significant enough uh, to really have a causal uh, uh, relation to what you're searching for. So these are kind of the, the perks and the, um, the opportunities for these three terms. What do you think will AI associated applications, uh, how will they change biological research in the coming years? Will they somehow be a driver and savior of the research or are there more than uh, would one look at them in more the dangerous black box uh, that can also drive you to false data interpretations and unsubstantiated decisions? What do you think? That is um, highly dependent on how well educated the people are who use it. I mean, if you are just applying it naively, of course, that is, uh, that is dangerous and uh, will lead you uh, to uh, dead ends. But um, I think it has a tremendous potential. And uh, as soon as there will be, I mean, there's lots of education happening as well in the AI sector. So if you take a look at the universities and uh, uh, other uh, higher institutions, um, there are uh, many, many courses that uh, support you in the basic understanding of how to work with this kind of technology. And uh, as I said previously, um, if you are not able to interpret the results that you get from it, um, it's, it will always be dangerous, uh, regardless if you use AI or not. But in, uh, in this, in this uh, sense, I think that biological research is already benefiting, and not just from the image analysis uh, perspective. There are in um, uh, target discovery and in other um, areas, there are so many different applications of AI um, also in predictive modeling um, that uh, yeah, allow you to be much more efficient and to do simulations on something that you previously needed to do in the wet lab. Um, we actually come to the end of our interview now. Um, I have no more questions on my sketch sheet here. Uh, thank you so much. It was fascinating and very interesting and very exciting. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation with you. Um, my pleasure. My pleasure too, and I wish you a pleasant day and a successful rest of the week. Um, Thank you to you too. Thanks so much. Goodbye. Bye-bye.